title today is Evangelism Excavation. Anybody ever participate in an evangelism explosion before? Anybody? Only a few of you. Wow, that's surprising. But it's an evangelistic method that you learn and it helps you share your faith. And today I want to use the term excavation about evangelism. And here's my non-technical definition of evangelism. It's, or of excavation, shall we say. Excavation is getting the dust off of something. Something that was alive and is kind of lied and fossilized. To excavate it is to wipe the dust off and get it out and let everybody see it again. Because that seems to be what has happened to evangelism in, in the church lately. I remember when I was growing up, evangelistic methods like evangelism explosion or way of the master or whatever it was were, were a big deal. Churches talked an awful lot about them. And we had crusades and missions was a big thing. And I don't know when it changed. It could have been just that I was young and that's what I was seeing. But that there's been a, a souring in the church on the idea of evangelism. Especially in the world, of course, because the world doesn't see evangelism as a good thing. They see it as the future colonization of people's minds, and they don't like to use the word evangelism. They use the word proselytizing, right, which is not what I'm trying to do. I don't care if anybody's a proselyte of mine. I want to share good news, which is what evangelism means. But now even in the church, especially, here's where I see it the most, in the jokes that we tell. We tell a lot of sarcastic little jokes about evangelism and sharing our faith and how awkward it can be and how some people beat you over the head and all oh, my friends think it's so cringy that we try to talk about Jesus and all that. Well, as we say many times, I'm not really interested in the world's attitude or even the church's attitude. We need to know about what God has to say. Can we agree on that? So when we look at Romans, what we've seen and what we will continue to see, we've learned the gospel in great detail. We went through the whole condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification. We've gone over all that. But as we know, it's not enough just to know the gospel. You've got to share the gospel. You've got to proclaim the gospel. Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus was telling them right before he ascended to heaven, you're going to go and tell everybody. That's what a witness is, right? Talking about what they've seen. We've been told by our Lord Jesus. And so it's up to the church when everybody else grows silent and sees these things as passe and maybe even a little bit offensive. And why can't we just be like everybody else to pick up the torch and proclaim the message? Not just in church, but in the workplace, in the social square and online and everywhere else. So we're going to look at this. These are some famous verses for good reason, and it'll be good to study them in context here. Let's read verses 14 and 15 to begin. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The last word we saw from verse 13 was a quote from Joel 2.32 when it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter talked about in Acts 2 that those days that that prophecy talks about have been inaugurated. We're living in them now. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul immediately moves on to the application here, this chain of rhetorical questions. Okay, if you call on the Lord to be saved, well, how are you going to call on him if you don't even believe in him? How are you going to believe? You don't even know who he is. How are you going to know who he is unless somebody tells you? These rhetorical questions all leading to the conclusion that we ought to preach the gospel. And we're going to break this down in, in, in four points here at the beginning that, if you're taking notes, might help you organize it. Let's start by getting a definition of evangelism. 
This is important to know what it is we're talking about. The word comes from euangelizomai. You turn the U into a V and you get evangelizomai. U in Greek as a prefix means something good, right? And then angelos is like angel or messenger. So you is good. Angel is like messenger. So good message or good news. And so good news idzomai or eyes. So to evangelize is to good news eyes somebody. To take the good news and gospelize them. To proclaim good news. And Paul uses that word proclaim. He says preaching, which is a good word. It's the word keruso, which you've heard about before. But when we think of preaching, we think of very formal standing in the pulpit, giving a Bible study, three points in a poem, right? And that's preaching. Well, that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here, although it can include it. Keruso means to herald something or proclaim something, like the town crier going through the, the city and telling everybody the news. So proclaiming the good news. That's what evangelism is. Taking the good news, which we've spent months now learning about, that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, rose from the dead on the third day, and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. To evangelize is to tell people, to tell them about the gospel. So this includes just very simple proclamation. I just evangelized a little bit. By telling you in about five seconds, Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, rose again from the dead, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can also explain the gospel, which is to take what I just said and lay it out in more detail. If you've got more time to explain the gospel to somebody, you explain, well, Jesus needed to die because we're dead in our sins. Don't you know you've done wrong things? Well, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. But Jesus died on the cross, and he was the son of God, so his death matters. Do you see? That's explaining the gospel. It also includes defending the gospel. We have to do a lot of that these days, haven't you noticed? Everybody has objections and everybody wants to ask about this or that issue. And there is a long-standing tradition in the church of what we call apologetics, which is not apologizing for the gospel. An apology in its original language means to defend. It means a defense of something. So we defend it. People ask us about the classic ones are evolution or why do bad things happen to good people or what about this or that sin? You know, we defend the gospel, which is exactly biblical. Because Peter said we should always be ready to make a defense to those who ask. We persuade people. Here's something that can get lost. Sometimes we think, well, I've given my message, and they said, no, okay, I'll move along. I was telling the story earlier of somebody who I was evangelizing to just this last week, and I was persuading. I was pleading. And I, you can't just let it go. You've got to be able to tell the person and persuade them and answer their objections because you want them to believe in the Lord, do you not? Well, it doesn't seem very polite. Polite? We're saving souls here. You persuade people. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we persuade men knowing the fear of God. There's also prayer related to evangelism. Hudson Taylor said it is possible to move men for God through prayer alone. When he was asked, how did you, an Englishman, go to China and make so many converts when nobody else could? Basically said, I prayed a lot. You pray for people. And there's also an aspect of it where you, you live a life that gives a good testimony. The danger of that, though, is that that's, we really like that one. So doesn't the Bible say that preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words? No, the Bible doesn't say that. That was a church father that said that, and everybody fights over which one it was. And that's fine, but don't use that as an excuse to never open your mouth and speak. The Bible talks an awful lot about preaching 
the gospel. I'm not an evangelist. Neither was Timothy, but Paul told him, do the work of an evangelist. So whether you are Billy Graham preaching the gospel to millions of people or you're just mama taking your young son and explaining the truth of the gospel to him and bringing him to the place where he needs to make a decision. You know, Billy Graham laid in state in the, in the Capitol Rotunda, honored after his death. But there are so many that get no glory and no celebration during this life that the Lord is going to reward and honor on that final day because of their evangelism. Amen? So whether it's official or personal, evangelism means just go tell somebody. Go tell somebody about what Jesus has done. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Isn't that something? That when you preach, God is speaking through you. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's four quick words. That's the gospel. Be reconciled to God. So it's not trying to gain members for your church. It's not trying to persuade people on a certain social issue. It is the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and the forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel. This is what we're preaching. Now, there's the necessity of evangelism. Here's number two that Paul points out here. Well, how are they going to call on him if they've not believed? And how will they believe if they never heard? And how will they hear unless somebody preaches? No one can believe in what they don't know about, and so we evangelize. We need to evangelize. Now, we can get stuffy right here and say, hold on a minute. God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. God can save whoever he needs. Okay, fine. That's what William Carey was told when he was trying to raise money to go and bring the, the gospel to India. One of the first world missionaries and an old man stood up in a church where he was speaking and said, young man, sit down. When God sees fit to convert the heathen, he will do it without either your help or mine. Well, that sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? I trust God to do what he's going to do. Yes, God can do whatever he wants, but let's let, not look at what God could do or might do. Let's look at what he did, which is tell his church to go spread the gospel around the world. God, who is sovereign and has all power, said, go preach. Go evangelize. Go make disciples. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, so it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. The folly of preaching. How many, how many dissertations have been written around? Just preaching the gospel is just not enough for this new generation. They've been saying that since Rome was still in power. Come on. It's the foolishness, the folly, the simplicity of preaching. That's God's method that he chose. So if we're going to honor him, we're going to honor his wishes. This is God's ordained method to save souls. The preaching of the gospel by Christians. He sent men out to proclaim the gospel. You cannot pass the buck and say, well, the Spirit's going to do what the Spirit's going to do. The Spirit says in the Word, go, make disciples of all nations, doesn't he? We preach the gospel. God has sent us out to do the work, which tells us that apart from our preaching, your preaching, the lost will stay lost. Without you preaching, the lost will stay lost. It's necessary for us to preach the gospel because that's the way that God has determined to do it. Which leads us to number three, obviously, the responsibility of evangelism. He says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? Here's the good news. You have been sent. You have been sent. By whom? By Jesus Christ himself. 
To do what? To do everything that Jesus did. John 20, 21. This is post-resurrection. Jesus has appeared to the disciples. And he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You want to have a fun Bible study? Go through the Gospels and see every place where Jesus talks about how he was sent. I have not been sent, he said, to help those that are well, but those who are sick, right? Those kinds of things. And then write all those down. That describes how you have been sent. Because he said, as the Father sent me, even now I am now sending you. He says, the, the Son of Man was seek, sent to seek and save the lost. Seek and save the lost. That's how you have been sent. Seek. Go find them. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go seek the lost. And then save them by proclaiming the message. Well, I don't save anybody. Okay, yeah, doctors don't have magic when they give you medicine. But they're giving you the life-saving prescription, are they not? That's what you have in Christ Jesus. Go give it to some people. That's a mighty responsibility. If God has chosen us to save the world, all of a sudden it feels like the weight of the world is on our shoulders. That we as a church are to spread the gospel around the world. And not only that, but we as individuals and our sphere of influence are to spread the gospel to our neighbors, our family, our co-workers, the students that we go to school with. Keith Green said, and I love this, this generation of believers is responsible for this generation of lost souls. It's kind of stabs you right in the heart, doesn't it? Oh man, I better, I better get my act together. Yeah. Because the church is God's way of saving the lost. You've been specifically commissioned to those you encounter. Those who you come across every day, those are your responsibility. Obviously, each individual has their own responsibility to respond to the gospel, but you've got to at least tell them, how are they going to believe if they don't even know? And how are they going to know unless you tell them? As I love to say, there are some people who will not listen to anybody else, but they might listen to you. You must take advantage of that. There is no time to, as we might say, live our own lives. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to give up your life. Because the work is too, too amazing. The work is too heavy. It's too big. The field is white unto harvest, Jesus said. Jesus said the problem would not be that nobody wanted to get saved. The problem would be that there are so many people that might be saved and so few laborers to work in the harvest to bring them in. So we need to go. We need to preach. We're battlefield surgeons. Oh, I just really need a mental health day. You're at war. Get out there. Do what needs to be done. There are people dying and going to hell. The time is now. We have a responsibility. Well, number four is the blessing of evangelism. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's a quote from Isaiah 52, verse 7, if you want to write that down. Isaiah 52, verse 7. When he's celebrating the fact that God is going to come and restore the nation of Israel, and is, oh man, there, is there anything more wonderful that somebody comes bringing good news? In Hebrew, actually, that word for the one who brings good news, who preaches good news, most often in the Old Testament refers to somebody bringing the news back from the battle. Did we win or did we lose? How beautiful are the feet of the guy that runs back shouting, we won! That's what we're doing. And in Greek, that word for beauty is, the, is bloom. The bloom of life, like a flower that blooms or a fruit that ripens. How beautiful. 
There is a special beauty to evangelism. There's nothing quite like it. There is nothing quite like being able to tell somebody about Jesus and then watch them pass from death to life right in front of their eyes. To watch regeneration happen in real time. To see somebody go from being the old man to the new man. To become a new creation right in front of you. This is why I I think new believers so often make the best evangelists. Because it just happened to them. I've got to get out there. I've got to go tell my friends. Oh, they're not going to want to hear it. I don't care. They've got to hear. I just got transformed. God honors people like that to bring the message of victory. Remember in Acts 3, verse 11, when James and, or Peter and John healed the lame man at the beautiful gate? And he begins to leap and dance and praise God. And while Peter is preaching, it said that the man was clinging to him, clinging to him. And Peter says, no, none of y'all should be looking at me. You should be looking to the Lord. But that's, that's what it's like. The blessing of seeing a lame man that has nobody and nothing. And now he just grabbing hold. He said, don't let me go. I need to stay with you. The gospel attracts attention. It engenders love. They say nothing of God's favor when you preach the gospel. How many times in the Bible is the Holy Spirit's power tied to evangelism? The answer is just about most of the time. So often we sit in the church and we pray, Lord, send your power, send your fire. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. But we have no intention of getting up and telling anybody about Jesus. It's the difference I love to say between a bodybuilder and an athlete. Let's say a football player. They both go to the gym. They both watch their weight. They both lift those massive, heavy, strong weights. One of them is doing it so that the muscles will look good. The other one is doing it because he's about to line up in front of a 400-pound man that's going to try to run him over. And he needs the power to fight back. Very often we want to be spiritual bodybuilders in God's church. We want to have great meetings and feel really good and go home walking on sunshine. Thank you, Holy Spirit. But the Lord's like, I'm looking for somebody that needs my power to step out and preach the gospel to somebody that wants to stick a gun in your face. That's what we're looking for. If we know, and we do, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, we got to go tell people. Tell as many as we can. And in fact, if you truly love God and truly love people, there's no alternative. I'm just kind of shy. I'm just, I don't really like talking to people. Oh, with all the love in my heart, brothers and sisters, what does that have to do with it? People are dying and going to hell. Yes, there are those of us that have that gift. And I'll tell you, I don't have it. I'm not a good personal evangelist. This is easy for me. You know, talking to somebody in a, in a counseling situation, I can handle that. Talking about the theology of Scripture and the Christian worldview, I can do that. But then when it comes to sitting down and talking to somebody in the grocery store about the gospel, I panic. But guess what? you got to do it. Here's my favorite evangelism story. Greg Laurie, whom some of you know, is now a, a leader of crusade evangelism. So he goes around and he rents out stadiums and preaches the gospel and people get saved. And he first shared the gospel with somebody when he was saved at, at like 19 as a hippie in California. And he was told, you as a new Christian need to go and share your faith with somebody. And he said, well, as I said, if that's what I've got to do, I've got to do. So he went out and he had one of those tracks in his hand and he went out on the beach and talked to some lady and said, ma'am, can, can I read this to you, please? Can I share this with you? And she said, okay. And he says, I held up that tract in, in front of my face like this. And I read line by line. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And it says, then I come to the end and I say, would you like now to pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I look up and the lady goes, yes, I would. 
And he leads her to Jesus right there and then brought her to the church and she got in discipleship. And he says, man, it was like I just got bit. It's like, I got to tell somebody. This is amazing because it doesn't really depend on me. It depends on God. And he used to, I think this was his story. He used to go to the beach and stand by the water fountain and say, you know, if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that the Lord gives you, you'll never thirst again. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Lord honors people that step out when they're scared. And it reminds us that it's up to the Lord. You're a herald. We persuade, we defend, but it really, it's God that gives the increase, Paul said. There's really no alternative. If you truly love God and you truly love people, you've got to tell them that Jesus loves them and died on the cross for them. Unless you believe that the gospel is merely social. If you think that the Christian religion is just there to be the glue that holds society together, or you believe that this is something human, something that we just made up and it's helped some people, if you believe that, then you're going to think that it's offensive going out and trying to change somebody's culture. Somebody said that to my father when he was going to Nepal one time. He goes, isn't that kind of arrogant to take your religion and go and try and change somebody else's religion? To which he said, if it was my idea, sure. But this is God has told me to do this. If you believe that this is just something we made up, then you're not going to like evangelism. Which tells us, real quick before we move on, that people that don't believe in Jesus, their opinions on evangelism don't really matter to us. They don't know. They just simply don't know. They're still dead. They're still blind. So when somebody that doesn't know the gospel says, those Christians just got to stop. It's not working. It's like, with all due respect, you also must be saved. You need to believe. You're blind. You're dead in your sins, but Jesus can save you. So don't let yourself be shamed by carnal Christians or certainly by unbelievers. I want to tell you, you can't talk about Jesus here. We have this commission from Christ himself, and we cannot keep silence. So we've seen that. The definition of evangelism, bringing the good news to somebody. Number two, we saw the necessity of evangelism. This is God's way. This is how he's decided to do it, which number three means there is a responsibility that each one of us has to share the gospel. But number four, there's such a blessing that comes along with that. So we look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. As glorious as evangelism is, Paul reminds us that we do not often see the results that we would expect. Any amens on that? You preach the gospel knowing full well what it is, and sometimes you're just flabbergasted at the people that reject it. Especially when the Lord totally lines up the scenario that it's so clear that this is a divine appointment. But sometimes it's like, who, who even listens? what we say. That's a quote there from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? You've probably read that around Good Friday quite a bit. Who has believed our report? That's that passage right there. It describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in prophetic form. And Paul's specifically here talking about the Jews. That's the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's asking the question, how come so many Gentiles are getting saved and almost no Jews are getting saved? Paul himself was a Jew, of course, and he's saying, all right, yeah, it's great to preach the gospel, but nobody's believing, it seems. In verse 17, he draws out a principle from Isaiah 53, verse 1. He says, okay, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word, because that's what Isaiah said. Who has believed what he has heard? So hearing precedes belief, and hearing what? That's, of course, the word of Christ, which is the gospel. Not everybody's going to listen when you preach or like it. 
Jim Elliott went down and he and his friends were, were killed when they tried to preach the gospel to the Indians. 2018, do you remember this? John Allen Chow went to Sentinel Island, came from Oral Roberts University to preach the gospel as a missionary there, and he was killed almost immediately. And you know what I remember about that story? Is how many worldly mainstream or otherwise media sources talked about how ridiculous, what a waste. Why would he bother going telling them about something that they don't want to hear about? Obviously, they, they killed him. He knows it's dangerous. He knows they're cannibals. Why would he go? Christians are so foolish. But what was awful is that all the Christian press said the same thing. This is just a reminder to us that evangelism and missions work is, is really something that we shouldn't be doing. It's, it's Western colonialism at its worst, and we shouldn't be doing that. Instead of celebrating this martyr for Jesus Christ, who went out preaching the gospel. I don't know, but I hope somebody else has followed up and has continued to go. But you can see, it's not always going to be what you think. And Jesus told us that, didn't he? In Mark 4, when he told the parable of the sower. The sower sows the seed, and some of it lands on the path, some of it lands on stones and thorns and good soil. And you can go read Mark 4 in your own time if you like, but he gives us four different responses to the gospel that you might see. Number one, the one who hears the word and Satan snatches it away. It's bad soil. It lands on the path and doesn't sink down. Sometimes you preach the gospel to somebody and it, it just goes in one ear and out the other. It has nothing to do with your presentation, nothing to do with the words you said. They just kind of hear it and they kind of blank stare and then move on. I've had days where I come up and I, I feel like I got something to say, man. Today, somebody's going to get saved for real. This is it. And I stand up and I preach and I think I do a pretty good job and Two seconds later, everybody's talking about the game. I'm like, what happened? That, that, was, that was from God right there. And some of that's pride. i got to get over that for sure. But some of it is Satan snatching the word out of people's hearts. Sometimes you share the gospel to a thousand people, and they all react in some way. And others just have no response to it. Number two was the, was the stony soil, the rocky soil. It says they receive the word, but there's no root and the first hard time, the first persecution drives them away. I think, unfortunately, we saw a lot of rocky soil over the last few years. A lot of people that were in the church but didn't have any roots because the first hard hit we received and they were gone. Most people are not coming back to church anymore. Isn't that sad? Stony soil. They're in the church. They believe. They're with you. It's great. The first bad thing that happens and they're gone. But number three was thorny soil. This is somebody that stays in the church maybe for a long time. But Jesus said the deceitfulness of riches and the love of pleasure choke out the word. Somebody who just goes right back to their sin. There's nothing harder than that, is there? To watch somebody who came into the church who believed and stayed for a while, but then they go right back to the drugs, right back to that sex life, right back to that job that wasn't doing them any favors, right back to that girlfriend or boyfriend that we all know is trouble. But then, of course, there's the good soil. There are going to be some who believe. And those are the ones that bear fruit. And once you've, once you've led someone to Jesus, as I said, there's, there's nothing like it. There's nothing better than that. But we need to remember, not everybody's going to respond positively. Some people will yell at you. We've gone door to door. We had doors slammed in our face. It doesn't happen as often as you might think, but it certainly does happen. Mostly you just know they're home, but they're not coming to the door. You can hear them pittering around inside and like, all right, I guess we better keep going. I've had people yell at me before. It's not as bad as you might think. Most people just want to talk to you. Some people want to, want to make fun of you. They want to, they'll get into this conversation so that they can mock you. That happens in groups an awful lot, I've found. 
you got a group of friends and you start talking about Jesus. It's not a real conversation. They're just trying to, trying to get a few laughs out of you. But some people respond. And some people respond and know that it's true and still walk away. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, 15-17, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being perishing. We're the aroma. When we preach that gospel, it's, it's like incense. It's like a smell. To one, it's a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. So one person smells that incense and it's, it's, it's like their funeral because this is the day they're going to reject the gospel for the last time. Others, it's the greatest thing they've ever smelled in their life because it means this is my day of salvation. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Who's good enough to go out and, and do that? For we are not, he says, like so many peddlers of God's word. You ever watched on TV and seen a peddler of God's word? Just trying to get a few bucks out of you? Changing his message according to the scenario to get a little bit more money out of everybody? But he says, we are men of sincerity, commissioned by God, and in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We cannot make a responsive faith happen. But as Paul says, that's exactly what needs to happen. We can share and we can pray. And as Paul said, we're not peddlers of God's word, which means you cannot let the rejection of the gospel be a sign that it's time to change the message. Uh, so many people have stood up and made this proclamation throughout the centuries, not just recently, but throughout Christian history. They stand up and say, people just don't respond to the message of salvation by grace through faith anymore. Usually the person in question hasn't been preaching grace through faith for a long time, but they think they have. And they'll say, so what we got to do is change it up. People don't want to hear savior narratives anymore. That's one that we've heard an awful lot lately, right? They don't want to hear about being saved because that's insulting. And it says that there's something wrong with them, to which there is. It's called sin. It's the whole reason Jesus died on the cross. We've got we to adjust it. And I'm not talking about adjusting your methods. I'm not talking about changing the way you present the message so that the people will hear you. You're not going to preach the gospel to the same way to, you know, the who's who with billionaires and millionaires as you are down on the street. It's going to be different presentation, but the same message. Now, culture is going to change. When you go to a different country to preach the gospel, you've got to adjust your approach, but not the message. So as our culture changes, the approach changes, but never the message. Never the message. So many in the church will do this, though. We'll preach about life issues, preach about political matters, and call it evangelism. I've been... Christian concerts where some guy stood up, gave a talk about life and how hard life is and, you know, God makes my life better. And then he gives an invitation. Like, you didn't talk about sin. You didn't talk about Jesus. You didn't talk about heaven or hell. You talked about how life is bad and it can be better. And sometimes the invitation amounts to who's got a bad life? Please come forward. Well, we're all going to come forward for that invitation. We've all got hard things going on. You've got to preach the gospel. Because that's the only thing that can save souls, especially in this day where people are pushing, especially on the political side. We've got to tweak it just a bit because these are unique days. These are special. No, they're not. Can I just tell you that? No, they're not. Maybe special for you or unique for me, but this is no different than anything else. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And when you pull back and look, yeah, he was right. Jesus gave us a timeless message that cuts through culture, that cuts through time, that cuts through circumstances. We don't change it when things look a little dicey. They were preaching the gospel during the collapse of the Roman Empire. And then all of a sudden, the people that were in charge were those barbarians they were all afraid of. 
Well, we've still got to preach the gospel. Same thing for you and for me. My uncle, who is also a pastor, had a person in his church who was just furious that he was not talking about certain political issues. And he was talking and, you know, explained reasons why. And, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for many different things. But, you know, she wanted him to get up there and, and start saying things about the election. And it was stolen and this and that. And he's like, ma'am, I'm, I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not really concerned with that as a preacher of the gospel. And so he said, this is not the same thing and is not as important. She said, preaching about the election is more important today than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most people are not so blatant with it. But sometimes, it, you know, people are like, well, so what? We're just supposed to sit back and take it? We're just supposed to love our neighbors? Yes! <laughs> love our enemies? Yes! Preach forgiveness and care about? Yes, we are! Christians are detached from all that. Just, just one or two steps detached. Because all of them need Jesus. Everybody needs the Lord. We don't change the gospel because, just because, let me say this, the whole country has decided to care about politics more than anything else for a decade or two. That doesn't affect us. Because in a few minutes, it's going to be something else. And, and they're going to move on from all that and say, oh, every, all everybody talks about is politics. Let's get back to this. And meanwhile, here's the church out here still talking about that. It happens over and over and over again. But if you stand right in the middle and say, all I'm interested in telling you is that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He loves you very much, but you must be saved. Have opinions on all those things. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you even shouldn't take, take action or anything like that. But as concerns the gospel, that is always the most important thing. Always. And it never changes. Because we're not peddlers of God's word. Oh, this generation just doesn't want to hear it. Then this generation stands condemned. We don't change it for them. I heard this my whole life, man, growing up. Oh, we got to figure out a way to speak to these young people. Yes. But then they would say things like, you know, they're just not interested in talking about blood and salvation and deep theology. And like, well, that's not good. Don't get rid of that. And the irony is now this is the generation that listens to four-hour podcasts about philosophy and history and all that kind of stuff. Turns out we missed that one, huh? We don't change the gospel. And neither should you. Well, there's, not, if I talk about that, it's going to be sensitive. The gospel talks about what a person is, man. It's always going to be sensitive. That's where you got to go. If there's an issue related to the gospel of Jesus, well, their dad was a bad dad. So if I talk about God being a good father, they'll reject it. Well, they have to hear that, that God is a good father. They have to hear that they're dead in their sins. Because then we can tell them that Jesus is offering forgiveness. Well, verses 18 through 21 here, coming to the end. But I ask, have they not heard? Again, speaking of Israel in context. Have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So let's keep this in context here. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says. And yet Israel lacks faith. So your first question is, have they not heard? That's a good place to start. If somebody doesn't believe, has anybody even bothered to tell them the gospel? They have, though. But they've not believed, which again is the point of this whole section. He quotes there in verse 18 from Psalm 19, verse 4. 
where he's talking about the heavens declare the glory of your handiwork, and there's no tongue or language where their voice is not heard. So this is calling back to Romans chapter 1, where he said that, that they are without excuse, for since the creation of the world, all things have been known so that they are without excuse. God's given them enough, in addition to preachers. This reminds us that even if somebody never hears a preacher, they're still without excuse. What about those that never hear the gospel? God has made it very plain. I've given you enough to at least start seeking and asking. I have a friend in Nepal, several of them, but one in particular, who he was saved when he had a dream where an angel appeared to him and said, you must believe on Jesus to be saved. And then I will heal you from the sickness you had. And he woke up and he was a, he was a witch doctor. He wakes up and starts praying to Jesus, and he was healed in an instant. And the next night, he has another dream, and this angel says, go to the next village. There's somebody there that will tell you about Jesus. So he shows up to this village, and there's a missions team there. He says, I have heard that you can tell me about Jesus. God is able to find people and bring missionaries to their path, rely on his sovereignty. So his second question, did they hear? Well, they did. Well, did they not understand? It's another common word of denial that we'll have, right? Well, they just didn't get it. That's why it's your responsibility to make sure they understand it. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, 21. I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. This is when the Lord is, is pronouncing the curses and the restoration that he'll bring to Israel. He says, I'm going to make you jealous by choosing Gentiles, which is what we're living right now. And then he quotes in verse 20, Isaiah 65, verse 1. I've been found by those who didn't seek me. He says, I'm being worshipped by all these Gentiles that weren't even looking for me. And Paul cannot fathom. He said, did they not understand? God warned them over and over and over again in the scripture. The day is going to come when Messiah comes. And if you reject it, I'm going to go to these Gentiles to provoke you to belief. He says, do they not realize that they're living that now? And 21, he quotes from Isaiah 65, verse 2. If you read Isaiah 64, you know this passage probably. You maybe have sung it before. He says, oh, Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. When are you going to come and save us? And God tells Isaiah, I've been standing here waiting for your people, but they're disobedient and contrary. He places the blame of their diminishment on their own shoulders, which is what we saw in real time in the book of Acts. Here's a, a, one story that kind of sums it up. Acts 18, verses 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's saying, you've heard enough to believe and you haven't. So I'm going to go to the Gentiles. In the very end of the book of Acts, Paul says, and the Gentiles are going to listen. And so here we are, a largely Gentile church, worshiping the Jewish Messiah. And he's going to explain this more in Romans 11. Uh, we're going to get into that in great detail that the Jews rejected their Messiah, the Gentiles received him. But I often feel just like Paul for my own people. Haven't they heard? I know they have because we've sent out more missionaries than anybody else in history combined. We've got more Christian radio and Christian TV and Christian books. And we've got these you know, heroes like Billy Graham and Adrian Rogers and Jerry Falwell. And everybody has heard the gospel. Well, don't they get it? How can they hear it and just reject it? Especially after our great heritage and blessing as a nation. How can, how can they reject that? 
I think about this, my friends that grew up with me in, in high school and youth group, that we went to church together and prayed together and worshiped together, went on mission trips together, and sometimes it seems like I'm the only one left. Like, you knew. How could you miss this? The simple truth is that those who are saved will always surprise you. And the ones who reject Jesus will always break your heart. Every revival has been a, an example of God saving people that nobody expected God to save. And those that everybody presumed would be first in line, showing themselves to be on the outside after all. This is why we proclaim the gospel to everybody, even and especially to the most unlikely. Don't ever say to yourself, well, that's somebody that's so lost they could never be saved. That's somebody that the Lord says, go preach the gospel to them. I'll bet you they have zero pretension about spiritual things. That's a, that's a hard man. He's not going to want to talk about God. Actually, he might. I have found that hard, broken people are usually quite willing to talk with you about God. It's always angry. <laughs> it's always full of pomp and arrogance. And you know they've never been challenged on some of these profound thoughts they think they're having. But they'll talk to you about it. The Lord's like, good. I can start with that. That's why Jesus preached the gospel to tax collectors and hookers. Because they knew they were sinners. You didn't have to convince them they were sinners. Go preach the gospel to somebody that you look at them and go, there's no way that person's headed for heaven. One of my other favorite evangelism stories is, uh, if you know, I forget her last name, Lacey something, who was the lead singer of Flyleaf. She was, uh, you know, like, a lot me, like me, actually. Grew up in kind of the rock and roll, heavy metal scene, dark eyeliner, black clothing, kind of that stay away sort of vibe. Mom dragged her to church. She had every intention of taking her own life that night. When I get back, I'm killing myself. Mom dragged her to church, so she goes, sits in the back row. And, you know, you know how, I'll say us, because I was one of those people, how we can be, right? Kind of making a, making a ruckus on purpose. But that, that gospel begins to be preached, and she just can't stand it. So she gets up halfway through and leaves, says, forget it. And this, she tells the story. This old man in a three-piece suit just took her by her shoulder and said, young lady, God loves you so much. Don't do what you're about to do. She says she broke down weeping and crying. And this hard-edged rock and roll, future, future rock and roll singer, suicidal, angry young lady, an old man in a three-piece suit in a little country church puts his hand on her shoulder and she's saved. And now she's an evangelist around the world. You don't know. Don't judge anybody. You know, people misapply that so much. But let's just remember, don't judge people. Jesus said, judge not lest you be. And he also says, the, the measure with which you meet it will be measured back to you. How hard you judge people is how hard God's going to judge you. Uh-oh. <laughs> some of us got some repenting to do. Consider those that you know are addicted to pills or to alcohol or whatever it is. The angry, skeptical, loud mouth. Say, I'll talk to you about God as long as we're talking. I'm not going to let you shout at me. I'm not going to shout at you. We'll talk. Somebody who's, who's gender transitioning. Well, that's, that's it. I guess they're lost. No, get in there. Get in there and tell them God made you fearfully and wonderfully and he wants to save you. I love you the way you are just as Jesus does. Those who are suicidal, you, got, you can't be arrogant or prideful Christian. You don't know who you're talking to. Here's a story, personal one. I was sharing the gospel at the mall in Lynchburg, Virginia. And, you know, like I said, I get intimidated when it's like evangelism day. 
I get scared. So I see an old man sitting on a bench. I figure this is a pretty good place to start. I'm living in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is like the Baptist capital of the world. He's probably saved anyway. So we'll start with that. I start talking to this guy, and here's his story. He said, I was training to become a Catholic priest when I was in, you know, 18, 19. Lost my faith in seminary. Didn't explain how. Lost my faith. Walked away from the Lord. Hasn't been to church. Hasn't read his Bible. Hasn't thought about God since he was like 20 years old. And I said, well, it sounds to me like God sent me to you to tell you that he still, he still wants to save you. Now it's too late for me. I said, no, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. The Bible says it right here. And he goes, okay, well, I think our conversation is just about over. I said, okay, but you need to know that God loves you and he sent me to talk to you. I still pray for that man. I still think about him and pray for him. Because, I mean, can you imagine? That, that was, that, that's not, you think that's a coincidence. You have more faith than I do, <laughs> all right? God set that up. He sent a young man in seminary to go talk to somebody who lost their faith in seminary at the end of his life. He was sitting on a bench at the mall waiting for his wife to come out of Sears or whatever it was. And God found him there. You've got to go. The, the most unlikely people are the ones that will be saved. And I hope you all know this, by the way. You know what? I'll just say this. I believe, this is what I believe, that God is about to do with our nation. I think we are on the brink of a revival that is going to weigh our nation in the balance. I think God is going to pour out his spirit on this nation and we're going to see an amazing sweep of the gospel, but it's gonna be like Josiah's revival where the Lord is gonna say, I'm going to pour out my spirit and give you every opportunity to believe and we'll see if there's anything left. And I will tell you this, the ones that get saved in the next revival are not gonna be the ones you think. And when they do get saved, all the things that you don't like about them might not change. They can finally stop dressing that way. Well, maybe not. They can finally change their hairstyle. Maybe not. Because that has nothing to do with Jesus, does it? Well, they can finally start acting more like they ought to act. No, maybe not. I want the kind of church where people walk in and they kind of look and take a, just a half step back. Wow, okay. Do we want to sit over there? All right, where do we sit? Because there's nothing more beautiful than seeing people that have been desperate and broken by sin finding Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see. Amen? Amen. So evangelism. It's not well thought of today. It's the wrong attitude, though. It is how all of us were saved and how all of us will be saved. Is there anything more insidious and satanic than convincing the church that evangelizing is offensive and wrong? Like, doesn't that obvious? Like, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. When he tries to convince us that things like prayer and evangelism and reading the Bible are somehow wrong, that's obvious. Oh, that's obviously Satan. So we can leave that aside. You've got to take the commission seriously. So look to your life as we wrap it up today. Who needs to hear in your life? Who needs to hear the message of Jesus Christ? The Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are true towards him. That means God is looking all over the world. Who is going to take me seriously? And when he finds those people, it says that he gives them power to accomplish that work. I'm not the resident evangelist here. I'm the pastor who's telling you to go do the work that God has given you to do. Go share the gospel with people. And some of you do. Do it more. Get out there. Take your headphones out when you go to the grocery store and talk to somebody. It's easy to strike up a conversation. 
Just find ways to turn it towards the Lord. I've told you the story of the man that shared the gospel with me in my driveway. He was my neighbor's father, and we're just talking, and then about whatever, and then he just goes, well, you know, I love Jesus so much. And just starts talking about the gospel. I said, are you going to share the gospel with me? He goes, you must be a brother. I'm like, yeah, we're brothers. And I loved that. He didn't, he didn't wind up. He didn't sneak in. He just took a breath and went for it. Because you're giving the Holy Spirit an opportunity to move. So if we will take him at his word, he will supply us with supernatural power. And we will see the lost saved in this room.